Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be looking this morning at the title or the subject matter, The Risen, Reigning, and Returning Lord. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? And we're actually going to begin at verse 4 and then read all the way down through verse 18. In verse 4, John says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Father, we thank you so much for these words of comfort and encouragement and victory. Lord, remind us that like John, whatever we're going through in life, whatever trial and tribulation, you are there in our midst. You are holding us in your mighty hand. And you're guiding everything about history and everything about our lives to the conclusion that you will be glorified and magnified in all things. God, thank you for what we celebrate at Easter, that you're alive. We're not here for a memorial service 
to commemorate somebody who long ago simply died and is in a grave. But we're here to celebrate that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords lives. And Lord, until that day that we see you face to face, we pray, God, that you would work in our midst. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want you to think with me a moment in the opening here about another passage of Scripture other than what we've just read in the book of Revelation. I want you to think with me for a moment about what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4. You see, the Apostle Paul there is writing to the church at Philippi and he's thanking them for a financial gift that they have generously given to him and he wants them to know something that he's learned about God that drives his belief about God. He said that he had learned the secret of having almost nothing in life and yet God got him through those times and provided for his every need. He said that he had also learned the secret of having plenty. And in those situations he had learned not to be greedy and not to focus his attention on all of his material goods. Because of that he wrote to the Philippians and he assured them that God would take care of them as well. And he knew that God would provide for their every need. You see it was his experience of God's provision in his own life that had taught him something about the nature and the character of God. Now folks, that seems to me to be a very similar lesson that God is teaching the Apostle John here in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is allowing John to have a vision of himself that should shape what John believes about Jesus. And so for Paul... Jesus taught him those lessons through life experiences that the apostle went through. For John, Jesus taught him those same lessons but through a direct vision. Two entirely different ways of speaking to someone but with similar lessons and outcomes. That's what Revelation 1 is all about. It is about a direct vision that the Apostle John had. But it is a vision that assured John of God's provision for both his life and the church. John needed to hear this message. Because you see, John is on the Isle of Patmos as a prisoner. Now the Isle of Patmos was a small island about 10 miles long and about 6 miles wide. And it was off the coast of Asia Minor. It would have been located out in the ocean, out in the Aegean Sea, about 37 miles off of the coast of Asia Minor. The Romans used it as a colony for prisoners. They would send people there that they wanted to get out of the life of normal everyday society. 
John is there because of an outbreak of persecution against Christians in the Roman Empire. John being sent there probably says something wonderful, something positive about the influence that he must have been having. John's ministry of the word, John's ministry of preaching the gospel must have been very effective in Asia Minor because the Romans wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to get him off the mainland and on this island where nobody could hear him and they could effectively silence his message. And while they're on the Isle of Patmos in exile, I believe John was very worried about the church. John was worried about the outcome of the persecution against his fellow believers. He might have been even a little bit concerned about the outcome uh, of his own life. What would the outcome be of this persecution? What effect would it have on the church? And so Jesus gives John a vision. Now folks, before it's said and done, it'll be more than just a simple vision. It will be an entire book. In fact, the entire book of Revelation. But even the vision in chapter 1 that we've just read carries a great deal of comfort in it for the Apostle John. And for us as we apply this message to us today. You see, the Jesus that John sees is the glorified Christ. This is not the Jesus of the four Gospels. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Yes, of course, it's the same Jesus, but instead of Jesus in his humiliation and in his suffering, this is Jesus in his exaltation and in his glory. It's a comforting vision to John. That Jesus is now exalted and glorified. He's coming again for his church one day in great power and victory. But until then, he's able to watch over his church. And folks, he's able to watch over you and me. Watching over his church doesn't mean that we will avoid trial and tribulation. In fact, some of the believers that John is writing to will experience death at the hands of the Roman Empire before it's said and done. But nonetheless, the promise in this book is that Jesus is going to watch over his church, over his bride. Through life or death, tribulation or hardship, Jesus will be with his bride. He will never forsake his bride. He will be with her to the end until she is safely at home in heaven with him. The Roman Empire will not win. Caesar will not win. If Christ delays in his coming, the world in future years will not win against the church. Just as Jesus experienced victory through his resurrection, those who belong to Jesus will likewise experience victory. We will be raised from the dead. You see, folks, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes all the difference in the world to believers. That's essentially the message of Revelation 1 and the whole book for that matter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead makes all the difference both now and forevermore. 
And so what does John need to resist doing? And what do you and I need to resist doing? John needs to resist just focusing in on the world and everything he's experiencing. He needs to keep his eyes on Jesus. Jesus had said to his disciples while he was still with them, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Jesus overcame through his resurrection, and so will you and I. So will all those who are in Christ. So whether we live or die, whether we have little or much in life, whether we experience trials or not, above all else, we must keep our eyes on Jesus Christ who conquered sin and death in the grave. He's risen, He reigns, and one day He is returning. And that's what we celebrate at Easter. I want you to see how John develops all of this. First of all today I want you to see with me the peculiarity of Jesus' life. The uniqueness of Jesus' life. The peculiarity. There's nobody else like Jesus Christ. Pick up reading with me again in verse 8 and following. John says here, I am, or Jesus is communicating, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I want you to underscore all of the unique things that are being said about the Lord that cannot be said about anybody else. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest the hairs of his head were white like wool like snow his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters And in his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Folks, that's quite a vision, is it not? There's nobody like Jesus Christ. Jesus identifies himself here as the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, he's eternal. There's never been a time that he hasn't been and there will never be a time that he will not be. In fact, from beginning to end, Jesus has been there and he will always be there. Life may change. Your circumstances may change. The world around us may change but the Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever folks we can count on him we can build our lives upon him he is that sure foundation that will never ever let us down and this vision would have no doubt meant a great deal to John 
I want you to remember John was that beloved disciple who had rested his head over onto Jesus in the upper room. But now John is locked away on the Isle of Patmos. But he's not there as a criminal. There would have been all kinds of criminals around John. But John wasn't one of those. John wasn't a criminal. John was suffering because of his Christian faith. The Bible says here that he was suffering because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why he was there. It was a great comfort for him to know that this same Jesus that he had rested his head upon was and is the same Jesus who is now watching over him in his time of exile. God's character never changes. Aren't you glad of that? He can always be depended on. 800 years before the birth of Christ in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah is prophesying about the birth of the Messiah, about the birth of Jesus, in chapter 9, verse 6, it says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government there will be no end. Now this same Jesus is with John. The same God that was with the children of Israel while they were suffering in Egypt is with John now. And it is the same God that is with you and with me. Now beginning in verse 12 and going down through verse 16, John gives us a ninefold description of the risen Lord Jesus. These descriptions make it very clear to us that Jesus Christ holds a very unique place in history. There's nobody like him. He's God's son and he's not dead. He is alive and he's working in his world today. He's not somebody standing back. And just simply allowing things to spin out of control. You and I read the headlines and we might feel at times that the world is spinning out of control. I can guarantee you, I can promise you on the authority of God's word, this world is not spinning out of control. God's got it right in his hands and everything is on schedule. Look at how John sees Jesus. John saw Jesus in the midst of the seven lampstands. The lampstands are the churches. And seven is the number of completion. And so while these are seven literal churches in Asia Minor, they no doubt represent all of the churches of all of the ages. And I think it's very fitting that the church is symbolized here by a lampstand. What does a lampstand do? A lampstand supports the light. It shines the light. A lampstand is not the light. It's where the light shines forth from. The church is not the light. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light of the world. But it is the church who holds the good news of Jesus out to a dark world. We preach the gospel. And so the church is being described here as a lampstand. And I want you to notice where Jesus is. Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. He's in the midst of his churches. Don't miss that. 
Folks, the significance of that is we don't worship a well-meaning martyr or a dead heroic religious leader. He's alive. The living Christ indwells believers and he's in the midst of his church. I want you to understand that this Easter. We're not here to celebrate some figure from the past who's in a grave. Easter services are not annual memorial services that pay homage to somebody famous from the past who's now dead. That's not what Easter is about. Easter services are celebration services that proclaim that Jesus Christ is risen, that he reigns, and he is very much with us. Christ is alive and he's in our midst. He works in your life. Even when you don't realize it sometimes. Even when it may take years for you to look back on something and see how he was working. He's there working. Because he's alive. That means the child of God is never alone. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said to his disciples, it is to your advantage actually that I go away because I'll, I'll send another in, in my name and he'll be the helper, the comforter, the teacher. And so through the power of God's Holy Spirit, Jesus continues to be with us. And John got a vision of the glorified Christ that was with him. He was clothed in a white robe reaching all the way down to his feet. And girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now while such robes like this were sometimes worn by royalty. The significance of this robe is that it's the robe of the high priest. All you need to do to see that is go back and read the book of Exodus. It's the robe of the high priest. And what are we told in the New Testament? Jesus Christ is our high priest. The high priest dwelt with his people and he re represented them before God. And God to the people. The book of Hebrews has a great deal to say about Jesus Christ being our high priest. The book of Hebrews says he exercises a comforting presence among us. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In chapter 4 he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In chapter 7 the writer of Hebrews says, hence also he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives, always lives to make intercession for them. And then in chapter 9 he says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
The reality of his life is that he indwells his churches. He's able to move sympathetically in our midst, caring for and protecting us and interceding for us. Doesn't matter what you go through. I think of when Daniel's three friends were thrown into that fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar looked and he said, Hey, wait a minute, didn't we throw three men in? But I see four and they're no longer bound and one of them looks like the very Son of God. He's with you when you need him most. Aren't you glad of that? And so he, he exercises this comforting presence. He represents us before God, interceding for us. He carries us into the presence of God. He brings God's love down to us. And he's with us, letting us know that if God be for us, no one can be against us. But not only does he exercise a comforting presence, but also he exercises a purifying presence. With the hair as white as wool, like snow, we see a picture of Jesus Christ possessing all wisdom and all knowledge. Folks, he is the all-wise God. And that's what John is being allowed to see here. He can direct your life in the paths of righteousness. He knows what he's doing. He knows all about your life. In fact, he knows all about everything. Has it ever dawned on you that nothing ever dawns on him? He knows everything. He's the all-wise God. Have you ever wished that somebody could come along without somebody who never makes any mistakes and could direct your life and help you? Well, he can do that. He knows all about you. He knows everything about all things. He's fully capable of handling the situations that trouble you and me the most. He's not up in heaven pacing back and forth and wondering what in the world he's going to do with the mess that's in the world today. He makes no mistakes. He never has to second guess himself. His hindsight is never better than his foresight. I want you to think about that. You and I... Our hindsight's better because we don't have that foresight. His hindsight's not any better than his foresight because he sees all things. He doesn't have to practice until he gets things right. The white hair speaks not only of his wisdom but also of his purity. He's absolutely pure in all of his motives, all of his methods, all of his manner. And so whatever he does in your life, it is for the best, whether you believe it or not at the time. With his eyes like a flame of fire, we see his penetrating glance at his church. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creation hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In his perfect wisdom, there is nothing, nothing that he does not know about us. He also exercises a powerful presence. His feet are mentioned here. 
The feet of a king came to symbolize his authority. Kings in ancient times sat up on elevated thrones with their subjects below them at their feet. And so here's a very clear indication in scripture that we're to be under his authority. And John says his voice was like the sound of many waters. You know, people don't want to listen to Christ now, but he will be heard. John would have heard on that island that had that rocky coastline, John would have heard those waves, the waves of the Aegean Sea crashing in on those rocks. And that's the image Jesus gives to John of, of his voice. His voice was like the sound of, of many waters. Maybe you've stood before at the base of a waterfall or the base of Niagara Falls and the sound of the water was just deafening. It drowned out every other noise, every other sound. That's how his voice is. He will not be silenced. The voices in the culture now may try to push him out, but he will not be pushed out. He's sovereign. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, despite our best efforts to gag God, he is still there and he is not silent. As Revelation 20 points out, there's coming a day that all the great and the small will stand before him. And, and Revelation 20 says that heaven and earth will flee away. And there he will sit on that great white throne of judgment. And I can guarantee you in that day, his voice will be the only voice that matters. You and I need to hear his voice today and listen for him. And obey him and follow him. Better to listen to him now today in love and follow him in, in obedience. Than to hear his voice later in judgment. He holds in his hand the seven stars of the churches. The messengers of the churches. The idea is of control. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. We're his church. Remember what Jesus said to Simon Peter in Matthew 16. He said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And out of his mouth comes this sharp two-edged sword. Here again is this image of the power of God's word. Again, what's being said here, God's word will not be silenced. People can mock it. They can ignore it for now. But Christ will have the last say. And his word is two-edged. It's a two-edged sword. It will cut in the direction of blessing now for those who listen to it. And it will cut in the direction of judgment later for those who have ignored it. And so in Christ's glorified, risen state, he presents himself to us as the one who protects us, disciplines us, comforts us, teaches us, who knows all things and will not be ignored. He's very much alive and he's right here in our midst. And guess what? If you're a believer, the Bible uses the temple imagery for your life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
in the new covenant, the temple, the idea of a covenant, isn't just a building, it's a people, it's our hearts, it's our lives. Christ dwells in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's always with you and He's always in your midst. He's with us individually and collectively as His people. And we can take great comfort in that. Secondly, I want you to see the imperishability of Jesus' life. The imperishability of Jesus' life. Look with me in verses 17 and 18. John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John introduces us here to Jesus Christ as the living creator. He says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. The first and the last and the living one was a title used of God in the Old Testament as he was being contrasted with the dead and the dumb idols of the nations. The gods of the nations are dead and dumb idols. But our God is the living one. He's the living one. He's eternal. He's uncaused. He's, he's self-existent. In John 5, 26, Jesus said to his Jewish opponents, Just as the Father has life in himself, even so gave, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. His life was never derived from some other source. His life was always self-existent. Remember John 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God John saying when the beginning came around guess what Jesus was there already because there had never been a time that he was not from eternity past to eternity future Jesus has been there and always will be that boggles the human mind doesn't it? Jesus Christ is from everlasting to everlasting. All material, physical and spiritual substance has come into being as a result of His creative power. In John 1, 2 and 3 it says, He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being by Him and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Why is this important? Because nothing is more important than Him. Nothing created Him. He doesn't bow to anything. He made everything. Everything is subject to Him. Jesus Christ is the supreme authority in the universe and He alone is to be the supreme authority in your life and in my life. Folks, ultimately it doesn't matter what your friends think or say about you. What matters is what does Jesus think of you. The Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Furthermore, we see here that as our living Redeemer, He did not simply die. John writes, He became dead in order that we might live. In other words, the living one, the eternal self-existent God who could not die, became a man and He died. Think of that. In His humanness, now you got you to gotta screw down your thinking cap, okay? Screw it down with me for just a minute. Let, let's, let's go down underwater for a few counts. Can we do that? 
In his humanness, he died without ceasing to live as God. That's part of the mystery of what theologians call the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union points out that there were two natures in one person. In other words, Christ was fully God and fully man. Two natures in one person. Now before the incarnation, he only had one nature. He was fully God. But after the incarnation, after Bethlehem, he was not just fully God, fully deity. He was also what? Fully man, fully human. When he died, he died as a man, but he did not die as God. God can't die, obviously. He became a man so that he could identify with your hurts and your temptations and your weaknesses and be your sympathetic high priest. He became a man so he could go to the cross and die for your sin as the perfect sin sacrifice. And on that cross, he died, but it wasn't the end. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus died as a sin substitute. But having no sin of his own, death had no right to him. Death could not claim him. Death could not hold him. He could not. And would not remain dead. And so he was raised in Romans 1.4. The Bible says he was declared to be the son of God with power through the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection vindicated everything about the Lord Jesus. Who he said he was and what he said he came to do. The resurrection fully vindicated him. Death could not hold him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ says that God the Father was perfectly satisfied with the offering of his Son. When his son offered his life on the cross for your sins and my sins, the father looked at that, Isaiah 53, 12 says, and the father was perfectly satisfied with that sacrifice. His just anger against sin was dealt with fully at the cross. You don't have to try to work your sin off. You couldn't, even if you tried. You might be here in church on Easter for the first time in church. And you've maybe been thinking you've got to work off your sin and guilt. You've got to try to be good enough to be accepted by God. I want to say to you today, you've got to give up that battle. And you've got to come to Jesus Christ. Because God in Christ perfectly took care of your sin debt. He died for you. You could not have done that. And I could have not done that because we weren't the sinless son of God. But he was. And so he could die as your sin substitute and my sin substitute. And that's what he did. You'll never be good enough. I'll never be good enough. We'll never work our way to heaven. What we have to do is come to Christ and Christ alone. His death at the cross was once for all complete and sufficient. He died, but being without sin, he could not stay dead. And that's why the Bible also says that for those who are in Christ, 
Death cannot hold you either. Christ died for your sin and sets you free from its condemnation. You will die if Jesus tarries, but you will be raised because you're in Christ. He died. He was raised. If you're in Him, you may die, but guess what? You will be raised also. He shares His victory in His life with all those who are His. Now that deserved an amen. If you're in Christ, the grave will never have dominion over you. What Christ did, he did for you. Because he lives, we too shall live. And this is not something that he has to come back and do time and time and time again. Once was sufficient. Paul in Romans 6, 9 says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Death had him the one time, but could not keep him. He's never to die again. As the eternal God-man Christ lives forever in a union of glorified humanity and deity. Folks, that truth provides a great deal of assurance for us today. Because as Hebrews 7.25 points out, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. He's the ever-living One. The imperishability of his life. And why does that matter? Because in John 10.10 Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life. If Jesus himself were not the ever living one, it would only mean that what he did at the cross was not accepted to the Father. If it were not accepted to the Father, Christ would have stayed dead. If he would have stayed dead, he couldn't have given life. But because he's the ever living one, he gives life, eternal life and abundant life. And he's able to say, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. The imperishability of his life. And then lastly, I want you to see the authority of Jesus' life. At the end of verse 18, what does he say? He says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Those keys are a symbol of his authority. His control, his supremacy. Only Jesus Christ has supremacy over the power of human death and destiny. He has the authority to decide who lives, who dies, and who spends eternity where. I think of that parable of the sheep and goats where it says one day he'll gather all the people from the nations before him and he'll put the goats on his left and the sheep on his right and ultimately he'll say to the goats, depart from me, I never knew you and they go away into everlasting punishment and he says to the sheep on the right, welcome, welcome. Enter into my kingdom, into my authority. You see, he has the right, he has the authority to do that because he's the one who holds the keys. And in his authority, what has, in the councils of the Trinity from eternity past, what, what, what has been the decree that those who are in Christ will be 
saved and will be with him. His authority. That's his promise. And his promise includes those of your loved ones that you might be worried about who have died and gone before you. And you might be wondering what about them? If they were in Christ, you don't have to worry about them. They're with him. And as Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, when Jesus comes back, they'll be raised first. We'll be caught up to meet the Lord together uh, with him in the skies. And we shall forever be with the Lord. His authority. His promise. He has the right to say that because of who he is. He has the right to promise that. It is his to promise because he's given his life. Come to him. Believe upon him. Rest your life on him. Cast your care on him. Live for him. Do anything but ignore him. Because he, he ultimately will not be ignored. Outside Monrovia, Liberia is a small little village named Harbell. Built on the site of a former Firestone rubber plantation. And in the village a small church and school have been established to serve the displaced persons who live there. The pastor of the church is named Gabriel. And the headmaster of the church run school is named Emmanuel. The church serves 600 children and they have no books, no pencils, no paper, no blackboards or whiteboards. They have nothing. And yet they have 600 children to care for. When asked on one occasion, when the pastor was asked if he was discouraged and hopeless, he said, what? Hopeless? Brothers, we are Christians. We may be helpless at times, but we are never hopeless. Brothers and sisters, we may be helpless at times, but we are never hopeless. Because he lives, you too shall live. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me in prayer, please. We can rest easy today. He's not dead, he's risen. I want to invite you to come to Christ today. He can transform your life and give you hope. See what the living Lord can do to change your life. Come to Him. He can give you new life. He can wash away all of your sin. Doesn't mean that you won't experience some of the trials that common humanity goes through. But he gives believers strength to face trials with. Do you need that strength? Come to Jesus. Surrender your life to him. Quit trying on your own. You'll you'll never make it. You'll never make it. It's not through works of righteousness, not through the law that we're saved, but it's only through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Today, do you need to come to Him? Do you need to be born again? What a wonderful time to come forward confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. On the day when the church celebrates the life of Christ to come forward and say, You know, I know that He now lives in me. Come to Him. He said, those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. I want you to understand that you're never alone. John was alone on that island. He probably felt alone. He was in exile. He had big problems as he wrote these words. But the Lord was with him and stood with him. And I want to assure you, if you're in Christ, you're not alone either. Helpless at times, maybe, but never hopeless. And he gives strength also to the helpless. I may be speaking to somebody today that needs to come forward in a moment publicly sometimes here at Pitts people come forward and just bow at the altar and cast their cares upon him and maybe you need to do that today because you need that fresh touch of his strength in your life You may want somebody to pray with you. I'd be happy to. There are others that would be glad to. You might want to bring that person on the pew next to you and and say, come, go to the altar with me and just, just pray. I need the strength of the living Lord in my life. Before I close, I want you to think of something else too. Think of the beauty of what He is preparing for us. We look around at the world today. And if you ever travel much, you see some places in this world that the beauty is just breathtaking. And Genesis 1 says He spoke it all into existence in six days. 2,000 years ago, Jesus told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. If this world has all this beauty created in six days, can you imagine what heaven's going to be like that he's been preparing for 2,000 years? What a glorious day that will be. When we are finally raised to meet him in the air, and forever be with the Lord. That's our ultimate hope as believers. In the meantime, we need to live in this world as pilgrims who are just passing through. If you're a believer, this world is not your home. I want you to keep that in mind. Father, we thank you for your provision for us in and through Jesus Christ. Lord, this Easter, we want to magnify him in what you've done in and through your Son and our Savior. Without him, we're nothing. 
I pray for that one who needs to come forward today confessing Christ publicly for the first time. For that one carrying burdens, Lord, help them to see that just as you bore John's burdens, you can bear theirs. They're not hopeless. Thank you for the new life you give us. We celebrate that today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.